Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? So welcome to episode 19. In this episode, we're interviewing Graham Phillips of Prolongevity, and he was recommended to us by Chris Barkley from episodes six and seven. So Jackie, why don't you tell us a bit more about about Graham? Graham Phillips, Bachelor of Pharmacy, FR Farm S, so probably a fellow of the Pharmaceutical Society. Is, Society. Yeah is a second generation community pharmacist. He describes himself as the pharmacist who gave up drugs. I love that. Having played a very senior leadership role in the pharmacy profession, he became disillusioned with the NHS one size fits all approach to heal healthcare with its emphasis on waiting for symptoms to arise before treating or suppressing them with drugs. That's his words. He pioneered a new approach using his scientific knowledge, clinical expertise and new technology which resulted in the Prolongevity service. That's prolongevity.co.uk. The Prolongevity program helps people who want to lose weight, improve well-being and avoid and reverse type 2 diabetes by using technology to monitor real-time blood sugar levels. It provides personalized advice based on your data to help you make changes to your diet and lifestyle and they avoid the traditional approaches that treat symptoms after the damage has been done. Prevention is better than cure. Graham has two sons. One is also a pharmacist and the other a corporate lawyer. He lives with his partner Karen, a GP also passionate about lifestyle medicine in North London. Like Jackie, Graham is also an ambassador for the PHC Public Health Collaboration. He believes the world has become dominated by big food on the one hand makes you sick and big pharma on the other makes you 10% better. In the end, the science must prevail. So should we head over to the interview? Sounds great. Welcome, Graham, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Morning, Jackie. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. And we'd like to start off by asking, where in the world are you? Right now, I'm actually at home uh, in Barnet, North London. Ah. And the sun is shining. Yes. Have you had any rain this morning? Not not yet, no. Okay, we have. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit how you got into, you, you, you said that you eat real food is your way you describe how you eat. Tell us how you got into that. Well, as you know, I'm a, I'm a community pharmacist and I know people tend to associate pharmacy with the provision of medication and that's an absolutely fundamental part of what we do. But I've always seen 
community pharmacies, a highly accessible public health network. And the statistics are that we see 1.6 million people a day in the UK for health-related reasons, 1.6 million daily contacts with people, patients, uh, which is more contacts than the rest of the NHS put together. So that just gives you an idea of the scale. Mm. So if you were the marketing manager for a public health message, that would be a great place to start, would it not? Absolutely. Another point is that uh, the nature of our relationships. So people might typically see their GP, and I'm not knocking my GP colleagues in any way, so I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I'm I'm trying to say here. People typically might see their GP for a review once a year, whereas they might see their pharmacist on a, a monthly or even weekly basis. So we're stitched into people into the sort of everyday fabric uh, of people's lives in a, in a fantastic way. And I suppose my first excursion really into all of this was smoking cessation. And back in the Thatcher years, when Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister, smoking was regarded as a self-inflicted injury and you, and you had to pay for the consequences. So the NHS didn't go anywhere near smoking cessation. So when nicotine replacement first became available, it was rolled out as a private service through community pharmacy. And I was passionate about it. And I helped all these people quit smoking. And then 10 years later, when NHS started to take on smoking cessation services, I helped introduce it locally. So the GPs didn't train me, I trained them. Mm. So I guess I've always been fascinated by what's the potential role for community pharmacy in preventive public health rather than what's the role for community pharmacy simply doling out medication. So that was one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is my own personal journey. So I was a fat kid. Now, I was a fat kid when all the other kids were slim. Yeah, me too. Right? Now, all the ki- now all the kids are fat, and, and, and the odd one out in the class, what, in a generation or two, which shows it has to be environmental, it can't be genetic, I was the fat kid in the class. And I was, you know, always the one left on the, on the, on the start, starting line when they picked the football team. I was the odd one out, bloody, bloody, blah. And the, the, the thing was that the fatter I got as an adult, the hungrier I got. And the hungrier I got, the fatter I got. And I followed all the guidelines. And yes, at certain points in my life, I starved myself, exercised more, lost the weight and couldn't sustain it. Mm. Typical None story. of it works. Typical story. It's, it's the usual story, right? And that's what we're all told. Eat less, move more. You know, calories are all the same. You just need fewer of them and you can exercise. All rubbish. All unsupported by the science. And then one day I stumbled across uh, Michael Mosley's Horizon program on the 5-2 diet. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? I can do this. I can do this. And I did. And I started the next day and I lost 10 kilos. And I thought, okay, well, you know, fair enough. It works. Then I thought, why does it work? And that's five, six, seven years ago, I started re-exploring all the fundamental science and emerged with a completely different belief system that it isn't about calories in, calories out. It isn't about eat a little less and move a little bit more. Fat doesn't make you fat. The problem with, you know, we've been lied to basically, completely misled in terms of what's the fundamental science and what is the root cause. And... As I was saying to you earlier on, the one thing about pharmacy, we don't have as much clinical training as our GP colleagues, as our nursing colleagues. What we do have is a very fundamental grounding in science. So we learn microbiology. We learn electron cell transplant. We understand how mitochondria work. We know how microbiology works. 
So when you have to go back and re-explore the Krebs cycle and the fundamental science behind all of this, you've got the fundamental scientific knowledge that enables you to do that. Mm. So I was able to go right back to the start, which is what I did, and thought, let's reimagine the whole thing. What is causing this pandemic of what I like to call metabolic syndrome, diabetes, cancer, dementia, all re- all, I've discovered they're all related. Why is it that we treat them all as separate illnesses with individual drugs in, in, in all health systems? And is the root cause uh, lifestyle or is it genetics? And reach the conclusion that all these diseases, which are modern diseases, and if you go back 100 plus years ago, there were no cardiologists. Do you know why that is? Because no one. Because there were no heart no attacks. No heart attacks. <laughs> yeah, heart disease is a modern illness, right? Hun- Who knew? Who knew? Yeah, hundred- no one told me that at university. So I reached the conclusion that 80, maybe some people argue 90% of a healthy long life, that's the one we all want to live, is uh, lifestyle related. And it's how empowering is that because it's under your own control. So that was kind of the fundamental start of my journey. And so did you carry on losing weight after that? I plateaued and then I struggled a bit and then I was a bit up and down because I was still basically calorie counting. And yes, when you eat fewer calories on certain days of the week, you can kind of cope because you know the next day you can eat more. But it was still the same struggle. Yeah. And it wasn't until I realized what it was that was making me hungry. So it wasn't the number of calories. It was the nature of the calories. And as I gradually cut the carbs, particularly the processed carbs, and then more recently learned about the seed oils, I call it the tyranny of food, right? I used to be starving for breakfast. As I was finishing breakfast, I'd be thinking, what's for lunch? I'd be ravenous for lunch. And at the end of lunch, I'd be thinking, what's for supper? And I was just hungry the whole time. It was uncontrollable, unslakeable hunger. And I managed to sort of control my weight with supreme effort, permanently hungry. And then Mm. when I changed my way of eating, I wasn't hungry. So now, typically, if I go to a professional meeting and the only thing available is white sandwiches... Because I'm not hungry, I'm not tempted, and I don't eat them. Yeah. And I've, I've literally got rid of the tyranny of food. And most weekdays I eat one meal, and that's fine. Great. I can, I can choose. I can choose when to eat. And because I'm now fat adapted, and we can go into the, what that all means, because my body is used to changing from burning carbs and, and glycogen to going to fat burning, and it can change gear seamlessly – that whole thing of being permanently hungry, having hypos, mood swings, blah, 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 all completely gone. It, it literally it feels like being let out of jail. It's incredible. And it, mm-hmm. it frees up so much energy, doesn't it? Because you're not doing all that thinking about food all the time. It frees mm-hmm. up energy. It frees up an awful lot of cash as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Especially if you're only eating <laughs> once a day. And it frees up so much time because I can yeah. just work through without thinking, OK, well, I better go out and buy some lunch now. Mm. it's amazing it's i think it's also the paradox really it's the paradox of the um the hungry fat man that's exactly what you're explaining about how can yeah. this morbidly obese you know individual still be like internally hungry when he's carrying or she's carrying so much excess you know calorie surplus there yeah. but it's interesting you know that you've had this sort of you know light bulb epiphany moment not only as an individual, but obviously as a health professional. And it'd be really interesting to sort of hear how, you know, this translation of this lived experience of, um, I suppose, your own, um, of being, I suppose, a health professional, a, you know, an overweight 
um, health professional. I, I think there's an irony in that. Aren't you meant to be extolling the benefits of, you know, health and you're meant to be this, you know, character of, of health, but yet you were having your own struggles? Well, almost all health professionals, just like the rest of the nation, are uh, obese or overweight because because we're not trained. So health professionals get essentially zero training in sleep, nutrition, exercise, lifestyle. Stress. Right? Our training basically concentrates on how do you identify when things go wrong and what drug is the best one to use. So it's all evidence-based. But the starting point is essentially looking the door after the horse has, has bolted. We don't have that fundamental training in those things. And so we reach for the medication. It's not because we're evil or corrupt. That's how we're all trained. And it's only when you re-explore the fundamental science and realise that you can start from a completely different place that these things change. So that's, you know, yeah, you're quite right. I mean, <laughs> I often I get very frustrated. You know, you go to a... Um, Guy's Hospital or Tommy's Hospital, big McDonald's sign outside, right? Yeah. McDonald's, sponsor of the Olympics when we had them in the UK. Most, as, as Asim Malhotra says, most uh, NHS hospitals are simply a branding opportunity for processed food or fake food. Yeah. So we live in those environments. We're surrounded by those environments. And the majority of us would never think to question it. It's just how things are. Yeah. I was just thinking about hospitals and I was thinking my son was in hospital maybe three or four years ago, maybe a bit more. And it must have been more because I didn't know anything about low carb or keto at that point. And, but we ate real, we ate food and he wouldn't eat the food that they gave him. And I'm not surprised by the look of it. And so I'd go, we'd go down to the cafeteria, but you couldn't find any food it was like yeah, there's no, it's all fake food. i don't believe I yeah. that this is what they're serving people in a yeah. hospital environment and we couldn't find anything so my husband had to bring stuff in so yeah. that we could eat so my elderly dad bless him also a pharmacist phd brilliant pharmaceutical chemist actually i don't know if you know the drug imodium do you ever come yes. across that yeah, yeah, right. yeah. That, that that was my dad's phd right he's a clever bloke obese all his life and he was admitted to hospital um, a couple of years ago, the variety, and, and he's, you know, morbidly obese, right? So um, he was in rehab. I went to see him. So I was there at tea time. They had this kind of thin gruel of soup. Then they offered him seven rounds of white sandwiches, followed by jelly and ice cream. And then about half an hour later, they brought him a cup of tea with some biscuits. Yeah. This is a guy, right, who's morbidly obese in a hospital setting, right? I mean, you couldn't make it up, could you? So I emailed the hospital and said, you know, what the hell is going on? And and eventually I got through to the consultant for the ward and the consultant said, well, I'm the consultant for the ward, but I have no say on the food that's uh, provided to my patients. And eventually they put me in touch with the dietitian. The dietitian said, well, your dad's not underweight, therefore he's not malnourished. Therefore, why would we give him a particular type of diet, right? Well, actually, malnourishment is lack of nutrients. And the vast, the, there are far more fat people in the world now than thin people, that, but they're malnourished fat people. Yeah. Anyway, it got to the point where the only sense I could get out of the hospital said, do, they, do I want to make a formal complaint? 
I don't. They'd saved my dad's life. I didn't want to make a formal complaint. I just wanted some common sense. And at that point, I gave up. Yeah. And they're guided by the eat well plate, though, aren't they? They're guided by the eat well plate. And I think the NHS has 25 pence a meal to feed people with. Yeah. It's mad. We're not going to change that battle yet. Oh, yes, we are. Yes. (laughs) I'm determined that we fight that fight. (laughs) You call yourself the pharmacist who gave up drugs. Yeah. Tell us how you came to that name, because I think it's fantastic. Yeah. So my pharmacy group, I built up a group of uh, 10 pharmacies. And I modelled, I got very involved uh, with the leadership of my profession. So I was actually involved in creating the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, which is the Royal College for Pharmacy. And also in establishing the General Pharmaceutical Council, which is the regulator. So we have a professional body akin to the doctors and we have a regulator separately akin to the doctors. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 you know, so I, as a result, I know most aspects of the profession outside community pharmacy. I know all the senior leaders, both in hospital uh, and in academia and in pharmaceutical sciences. And so it's been a fascinating journey. And I've, I've, as a result of that journey, I've come across an awful lot of really interesting people. And along the way, I also helped solicit the really quite strong relationship between the Royal Pharmaceutical Society and the Royal College of GPs. So I got to know an awful lot of GPs as well. What I decided to do as we built up our pharmacy group was to recreate my, my group of pharmacies as a group practice of pharmacists. So we ended up with pharmacists with special interest in, in, in all these different aspects. And as a result of that, we went on to win huge numbers of local and national awards, including uh, myself becoming a fellow of the Pharmaceutical Society. Fellowship in my profession isn't a time-served basis. You actually have to have done stuff. Um, and, and And I'm a fellow both for the practice and profession of pharmacy because of the work I did in behalf of the entire profession. But the practice work was quite substantially around uh, professional development. So 10 years ago, I published a paper looking at uh, diabetes and the role of the pharmacist advising people around their diabetes to improve their compliance with the medicines they were taking. Because we know that generally people with long term conditions don't take their medicines consistently and also lifestyle. So that kind of journey in that direction has been going on for a long time. Mm. Having won over 10 years, pretty much every award and majority of them twice, I ended up frustrated because I reached the conclusion that, you know, as I said earlier on, we're essentially locking the door after the horse is bolted. If you stop taking your antihypertensives, you've still got raised blood pressure. If you stop your antidiabetics, the diabetes is still there. So it's not even that we're really, you know, curing people. We're not. We're simply suppressing the symptoms with medication and most people actually don't take the medication sufficiently regularly and or the medication isn't sufficiently effective that you end up with more and more medication and people are taking 20 30 different doses of different drugs a day and I was just frustrated because I thought what have I achieved despite all the awards I've done and all the stuff I've all the journey I've come across I'm not really helping people Mm. so when I came across the 5-2 diet and it worked for me that's when I started to re-explore the fundamental science. And I thought, okay, I now have a pretty good understanding of the science. Let me see if I can do something for some of my patients. And let me see if I can implement my knowledge and what I've learned on this journey and help people. 
Yeah. And I then understood two fundamental things, right? One is this uh, relationship between hunger, satiety, insulin and the insulin cascade and how it's a kind of dominant hormone. It dominates over leptin, ghrelin and all the other hormones. I understood that energy balance was essentially under hormonal control, not under voluntary control. And that if you got the hormones right, things would be much better. I'd also explored the role of the microbiome. And I understood by this point, for example, if you feed 100 people an identical meal, you might assume that all 100 people, in terms of the glycemic effect of the food or the combination of foods, would react in the same way. Wrong. And it turns out what determines your glycemic response is the microbiome, the bugs in your gut. And we can get into that later on if you want. Mm -hmm. So I'd understood all these things. So I pieced them together and they worked for me. And then we saw the uh, availability of the Libre Freestyle device, the continual blood glucose monitor. So I put all these things together and I thought, okay, well, let's try something. So my first client was a friend of mine called Jeremy. I can talk about Jeremy because he's um, it's a testimonial on my website. I'm not betraying any patient confidentiality. And Jem and I had gone back. I mean, we've been friends since our sort of mid-20s. And Jem was in his early 60s, um, a bit podgy. But Jeremy's problem was hypertension. And he'd been hypertensive since his 30s. Now, the way you treat hypertension is you pick the first drug, you titrate that drug either up to the maximum for the drug or the maximum that the individual will take. Yeah. Now, Jeremy being Jeremy wasn't happy to see a mere GP. For 30 years, he'd been seeing one of the country's leading cardiologists. So over 30 years, they'd taken the first drug to the maximum, then the second, then the third, and they'd recently started him on a fourth drug. So he was now taking doxazosin on top of the other three drugs he was already taking. Perfectly sensible, you know, appropriate cocktail to control his blood pressure. And it was controlling his blood pressure, but he was getting side effects. Now, Jem, by background, is an electronic engineer. So I said, listen, Jem, do you fancy having a go at this? Because, you know, you're data driven. You like electronics. You like science. I think we'll have some fun. And he said, sure. So I said, well, let's try a continual blood glucose monitor and see what we can achieve. I slapped the device on his arm, implemented the, uh, the online view of it. Next morning, big sugar spike. So I sent him a little thing on WhatsApp. Jem, what did you have for breakfast? He said, all bran. So I said, Jeremy, that's just sugar. Who knew? Who knew, right? So he said, well, what shall I have for breakfast? I said, well, have an omelette. So have a cheese omelette one day, an avocado omelette next day, blah, de, blah, de, blah. By, by the end of, I think, week four, without any hunger or calorie counting, I think he'd lost eight kilos. And his blood pressure was in its boots because he was still taking all this medication. So I said, look, Jim, I could do a medicines review for you, but go back and see the cardio. So by the time he'd gone back to see the cardio, another two weeks had gone by. It was maybe six weeks. He'd lost about 10 kilos, right, without any effort. And he goes in front of the cardiologist, and the cardiologist says, who'd, remember, this guy had seen Jeremy for 30 years and only ever increased his medication. The, the cardiologist, as reported by Jeremy, said, I've never seen anything like this in my entire professional life and halved his medication. Yeah. We're now two years on. He's 23 kilos later. I think he's off all the antihypertensive drugs, but he's still taking the statin because I can't convince him he doesn't need it. Yeah. So that was my first exploration. And as a scientist, I know very well N equals one, completely meaningless, right? <laughs> Everyone's Unless got one you're magic the one. story. Unless, Unless you're, the, you're one. the one. Unless mm -hmm. you're the one, right. So I thought, okay, well, let's try it. 
So I then tried it within Manor Pharmacy, within my group of pharmacies. I tried it on different ages, different uh, on men and women, uh, different problems. So we tried it on people who were uh, pre-diabetic, diabetic, hypertensive, people who just wanted to lose weight. And every single time I got this incredible result. I mean, it blew me away. I was astonished by the results I was achieving. And it was so empowering and exciting compared with just always spooning more tablets into people. From that was the Prolongevity Project was born. So it was initially, uh, our, our group is Manor Pharmacy Group. So initially we offered this as a Manor Pharmacy Group service. And I realised quite rapidly after, I think within six months, that this was going to have a life of its own. So we set about creating Prolongevity as a brand and as a standalone service in its own right. And I also decided, this is I'm 60 now, and I decided I want the next 10 years really to be devoted to the Prolongevity project. So of the 10 pharmacies I had, I sold seven. We've still got three really busy pharmacies, but it's freeing me up to invest my time and such uh, in savings as I do have in, in Prolongevity. Hmm. Great. But how does this go in terms of deprescribing? And that's really what you're advocating. Is that not yeah. bad for business? Mm. It is bad for business. And you know, we, so pharmacies make their money in three different ways. One is that we get a, a, a professional fee for the dispensing of medication. But we also, in the UK and in, and, and in certain countries abroad, are increasingly paid to provide public health services. So Healthy Living Pharmacy, which I helped start, began as, as, as originally in Portsmouth. But it's now a nationwide project with, I think, 9,500 accredited Healthy Living Pharmacies. The point is, we don't have to be paid simply to dole out medication. There's, nothing, there's no rule that says that our living has to be tied to the amount of medicines we dispense. You could reimagine the pharmacy contract, as many of us want to see done, and say, why don't we get paid more for not dispensing things than dispensing them? Mm. Why don't we have an increasing role, pr- role in deprescribing and get remunerated for that? Why can't we be paid? Like, in the same way we're now paid in the NHS for emergency contraception, for smoking cessation, for weight management services, there's nothing that dictates that our contract has to be around exclusively around the provision of, of medication. That will always be an, a, a really key service for pharmacy. We're always going to need medication. The question is, will we be able to use it more specifically and therefore more safely and less of it overall? And to give you some context, the entire community pharmacy service costs the NHS less than three billion, and the NH, uh, whereas the the, the um, NHS budget is one hundred and forty billion. Uh, the, the NHS drugs bill is twenty billion. So we're spending 20 billion on the drugs, 140 billion on the system, mainly to treat these diseases. And yet community pharmacy costs behind the sofa amounts of money. Mm. Well, what would you do? I know what I'd do. I'd say, well, we've got 140 billion. Why don't we chuck some of that money in the direction of these pharmacy people and see if we can pay them to do something that doesn't involve giving people more and more expensive medication that they're probably not going to take? Yeah. Well, for all of us, I think here, it just makes total sense. Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you spend that money on prevention rather than cure? But yeah, and it's not a cure, is it? It's a suppression of it's a, yeah. a suppression management. Of, yeah, it's management. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a paradigm, and I think we've got these mm-hmm. two huge paradigms that we're up against, which is big food and big pharma. Uh, as you've probably seen me tweet this, you know, big foods make you sick and big pharma makes you 10% better. Yeah. And until we see, you know, a proper rethink of the way money is spent and a reimagination of that, 
it will always be the case that when money is tight, they raid the public health budget to bail out the A&E. Yeah. And you wrote last year that you that Matt Hancock was keen to spend more on prevention. Do you think that's true still? Well, that's what he wrote then. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think he is. I think he genuinely is. But he's not the first health minister to say that they're going to change the paradigm. And then look what happens with COVID. It's all acute. Um, and I did a Facebook Live about this recently. I mean, there's a beautiful example, right? All the emphasis around COVID is which drug can we find to uh, reduce the risks? How rapidly can we come up with a jab, right? Yeah. And no examination whatsoever about, okay, what are the cardiometabolic, dietary, sleep, exercise, things that we can do to optimise our immune system and reduce our COVID risks? It's completely undiscussed. Yeah, totally. And so my starting point with COVID is in a completely different starting place, which is how can you optimise your immune system? Because it will reduce your risk of catching COVID. It will reduce your COVID experience if you do catch COVID. And guess what? It, when the COVID jab comes along, if you've got a really strong immune system, it will work better. Yeah. But no one talks about it. Well, no. it's interesting because Asim has actually got his 21-day um, immune plan. So you yeah. know, that's obviously a high-profile author advocating, you know, what is our, you know, what's our best protection and that's obviously looking at, you know, your waist, your hip-waist ratio. How can we get that down? Let's have a look at your vitamin D, which is which is fine because you've got one sunny day this – or maybe you've got a couple, got a week of a sunny days this week apparently, according to the map. Yeah we, we, yeah, we do occasionally have sun in the UK, you know, despite <laughs> what you may have been told. <laughs> and – but it – but it was looking at obviously looking at the um, those that who were most at risk or still are. That's obviously the yeah. elderly people that have those chronic diseases, comorbidities. But it was all these other groups like the BAME groups, you know, yeah. the those those that were most at risk yeah. was was actually you know out of left wing. Field, you know, who knew that there were these inherent risk factors in certain groups of our population? And it wasn't just the postcode lottery, it was all these other factors that were perhaps not talked yeah. about. And you're actually sure. correct in that the health minister hasn't really said, look, we have these vulnerable groups, they are not who we think they were, you know. Yeah. And let's let's have a look at strategies to to get that health information and health intervention into into those into those groups. Yeah, no, I mean as you probably know, I um, Asim and I did a video cast recently, and I completely agree with him. He's being vilified though. I mean, um, if you look how he's been attacked mercilessly on Twitter, and what's really saddened me is the the most unpleasant vitriolic vitriolic vituperative attacks aren't from the lay readers of the Daily Mail. They're actually from his medical professional colleagues. These are health professionals with medical degrees attacking not his science, not his science but simply attacking Asim because he's Asim and saying it's all snake oil and haven't read the book, haven't looked at it. I mean, yes, let's debate the science robustly because that's how things change. And, uh, you know, and, and when the facts change, I change my mind, famously. But they're not. They're not engaging with the science. They're just making all these unpleasant ad hominem attacks. And I've got really angry about it. So, you know, there are a group of us who, who some of the time spend a bit of time on Twitter defending Asim and saying, have you read the book hmm. before you decry it? 
I mean, if you think it's snake oil, what about it is snake oil? Uh, so, I mean, Assi might not be 100% right in everything he's written because this is early days. But by and large, I agree with everything that he's, that he's, he's written. And if you look at what the Prolongevity Programme provides, it kind of provides the implementation of everything that he says at the sort of uh, strategic level in his book. So there's a perfect synergy, actually. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about the programme? So the fundamental approach is to reframe the discussion that it's not about calories in, calories out. So we don't talk about calories. I've banned the word calorie almost from my lexicon. And let's remember the science again, right? A calorie is the amount of energy it it takes to warm one mil or one cc of water through one degree centigrade. That's what a calorie is, right? Your body has no calorie receptor. It doesn't recognise calories. So that's physics. That's the boiling of a kettle. We're not physics, we're biology. So this whole calories in, calories out, yes, there's truth in that, that obviously if you're losing weight, you're clearly using up more energy than is coming in. So it's, it's, it, if you look at the sort of um, th- second law of thermodynamics, it still applies, but it's all so much more complicated than that and, and fails to take into account how hungry you are. It fails into, to take into account how your basal metabolic might vary, rate will vary depending on a whole variety of things. It fails to take account the effects of insulin because the more insulin you've got, the more energy you will store and the less energy you will burn. So there are all these other complex dynamics. It fails to take into account the thermic effect of food, which is the amount of energy you have to burn simply to, to digest, uh, uh, digest the food and various other aspects of it. So once you understand that this isn't really about calories, this is mainly about hormones... And you then understand, well, okay, so how do we optimise our hormones? Why is it that animals in the wild aren't fat? Why is it if you follow the hunter-gatherer tribes who still lead a traditional lifestyle, then none of them are fat and they don't have heart disease and they all look fabulously healthy? What is it? And so you then have to understand that how people react to foods and food combinations, as I was saying earlier on, is very individual. So that's the basic science. Mm. Each person gets a continual blood glucose monitor. They wear the monitor for a minimum of eight weeks. So we start with that. I give them a ton of education, which goes into the kind of stuff I've been talking to you about, but in much greater detail. I particularly emphasize on processed carbs and processed foods and seed oils, because those are the ones that really mess up your metabolism. So So I spend about two hours with the client, Uh, having put the device onto them, and I give them two hours of education. At the end of them, I say, forget everything I've just told you. Because for the next two weeks, I want you to be completely normal for you. I want you to record in detail what you eat and anything else of relevance. We also collect all the standard biometric data that the GP would have done, or else we ask for fresh tests from the GP. They're all the standard tests, essentially looking at liver function tests, lipid profile, and HbA1c, uh, HbA1c is your measure of your long-term glucose control. And I've got very familiar with reading because there are certain things, there are lots of tests that I'd like GPs to be able to order that they can't. So, for example, they can't order insulin. Mm-hmm. They can't order a coronary artery calcium score. Um, but actually, if you look at the test GPs can order 
and uh, David Unwin is a great example of this, you can get a very good idea of what's going on from a cardiometabolic point of view. So I've, I'm data-driven. I get those tests. I then ask people about their sleep, exercise, diet, supplementation, ongoing medication. So after two weeks, I've got all that background of rich data. And I've got, a two, I've got what is it that the person wants out of this? Because as an individual, am I that bothered about my HbA1c? No. I'm 60, uh, you know, with our kids are starting to produce grandchildren. I'm actually interested in, can I get down on the floor and play with my grandchildren? Can I lift them up? Can I have a long and healthy, enjoyable life, right? Now, HbA1c means a lot to me as, as, as a scientist, as a health professional. As a person, as a human being, completely meaningless. Mm. So I try to translate the science and the facts into everyday life that's meaningful for people. By the end of two weeks, we've got a pretty good idea. We've got the data. We know what people are eating, how they're sleeping, and how, this, how everything is affecting them. And we can see how, for them, what generates the sugar spikes. Yeah. And then at the end of two weeks, we sit down for probably an hour, an hour and a half. It can be face-to-face or it can be completely virtual. And we go in through in detail, looking at how their sugar responses are, looking at their background information, looking at what is that they want out of it, because it could be hugely varied to see what works for them and at that stage we'll make the first set of small changes so we don't try and make lots of changes too quickly we'll make a small set of steady incremental changes over a period of time that relate to the individual right so there's all the theory about glycemic index but actually glycemic index is an average and almost no one's average so it may well be that for Jackie Boiled potatoes would produce a huge sugar spike and a pizza would have no effect whatsoever. Whereas for you, Louise, the reverse might be true, right? And I see this all the time. So much as we say, in principle, give up the processed carbs, actually, some people say, well, look, for me, rice is really important. I don't care about the bread and the flour. So, okay, we'll try different forms of rice with different cocktails. So people aren't giving stuff up. They're basically swapping foods that they like for other foods that they like. And actually, I'm often empowering people to eat things they thought they shouldn't have, like more fats, like more cheese, like avocados, like nuts and seeds. So actually, people have a a more rich and more varied diet, not a less rich and less varied diet. They understand that nutrition isn't about calories. It's about micronutrients. They understand that a healthy weight doesn't involve being hungry. And then we progress from there. And it's quite amazing. I mean, I can, I can show you graphs of literally people are literally up here all over the place. And within a week, they're normal. Mm. Their blood glucose is normal. Their blood pressure starts to come down. Their mood improves. Their sleep improves. Their joie de vivre improves within a week or two. No drug will do that. Yeah. So with the data, are you obviously aiming for you know, nice flat or seemingly sort of flat in terms of the glucose control. And that Pretty obviously much. gives them the the satiety, the blood pressure reduction, and obviously that's the weight loss. So that's obviously your data is to get them into a stable range and everything else the, seems to flow on from that. Pretty much. So the premise of prolongevity is live healthy for longer, Right. Whereas the premise of health systems is just live longer irrespective of your, of your quality of life. Awesome. Yeah. If you said to me in a tweet, how could you have the longest, healthiest life? I would simply say, secrete the least possible amount of insulin over a lifetime. 
Mm. Right. If you can keep your insulin low and slow over a lifetime, basically that will lower your cancer risk, your dementia risk, your hypertension risk, your mood will be better, your sleep will be better, you'll be less inclined to put weight on, you'll feel better, everything comes better. Uh, And it's of such fundamental importance. Well, we can't measure insulin, but we can measure glucose. So the proxy for that is have no glucose mm -hmm. spikes, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're, and you're sort of allowing people to sort of make the choices that sort of obviously gets them into, uh, you know, that glucose regulation. So it doesn't really matter what necessarily they're doing or what they're eating. Their choice of choice of foods is to, to optimise the, the nutrients that gets them into that glucose range. So I think we have to be a bit careful of being obsessed with sugar as if that's the only thing that matters, right? And I think this is can be a problem in healthcare and in politics, right? Get Brexit done or any of these things, very simple solutions to very complex problems. And human beings, just like politics, are complex and multifaceted. And it's very rare you've got a simple single answer. So much as I say, yes, let's try and keep your glucose low, what else is in, in play here? Exercise, let's talk about high intensity exercise and some resistance to maintain your muscle mass so that particularly in men, they don't become sarcopenic. And I explain how if you, if you retain muscle mass, um, it's a huge predictor of a long and healthy life. So things like, for example, can you sit down onto the floor unaided and can you get up again unaided without using your hands, right? If you can do that, that is a fantastic predictor of longevity, right? It also means that if you trip in the street and fall over, what's the likelihood that you're going to fracture a hip and, 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 and die of, as a result, having been hospitalised? So I talk a lot about specific types of exercise tailored, right? Then sleep. So here's the science. If you've had two or three bad nights of uh, sleep and you have a flu jab, it halves the effectiveness, because poor sleep fundamentally undermines the effectiveness of the, both the innate and the adaptive immune system. And of course, it's very likely that the same will apply for the COVID jab. So get, let's talk about sleep. Let's talk about sleep architecture. Let's talk about quality and quantity of sleep. Um, do you snore? Have you got sleep apnea? So that's another area um, that, that we need to talk about. So yes, the fundamental driver that I talk about is the sugar and insulin access and how that is a key, a key dictator of everything else but again it's like I, when you play golf right you don't play golf with one single I always call it a golf bat just to wind people up right you've got how many clubs in golf and you pick the golf club that's most appropriate for your circumstances right there are different pushes and pulls and levers and then okay what else can we do we've talked about sleep it's what you eat it's when you eat it's how you eat so we then might talk about, you know, this whole journey into autophagy and apoptosis to switch on the body's natural mechanisms that will hunt out the bad cells and recycle them. So let's, for, I'll give you one example. One of my clients, she's uh, 60 uh, and she's very fit and very knowledgeable. And we worked out she's running a daily cal calorie deficit of a thousand calories, right? Oh, so on no. a daily basis, she's eating a, f a thousand fewer calories than she's burning, right? And yet she's overweight and she hasn't lost weight for a year, mm. right? So this whole calories in, calories out thing, right? And I said, I don't know if I can help you because your knowledge is good and you're doing all the right stuff. Let's try something. 
Long story short, in her case, we probably increased the calories. We made some changes to the macronutrients, but we mainly did time-restricted feeding, right? So she probably ended up eating more calories over a shorter period of time. And she said to me her ambition was to lose a stone in a month. She didn't achieve that. At the end of week five, she said it's taken me five weeks to achieve what I wanted to achieve in four. Right? Yeah. This is after a year of doing absolutely everything right and losing nothing. Yeah. So the tie, you know, there are all these different facets that I focus upon. And that's why I provide a very personalized service that simply doesn't acknowledge a one size fits all approach. Mm. Which really. And that's why it's so fascinating. That's why I love it so much because it isn't one thing. It's Mm. like doing the most complicated uh, jigsaw you've ever done. Uh, doing them, you know, and it's it's endlessly fascinating because it's so different with different people. And I think that's that's the key that it is so nuanced, you know. But yet we have this eat well plate that says that everybody has to have this little quadrants of this particular food, and that doesn't, you know, that's it's too homogenizing and it's you know prescriptive on a population level, which doesn't take into account all those nuances. Agree with all of that, but it's also fundamentally scientifically wrong. So um, the Eat Well plate isn't unique to, it's the one we have in in England, but the Eat Well plate is pretty much universal through health systems. The Eat Well plate is written for Public Health England, so that's where the, the guidance comes from. And if you look at the guys who write that on behalf of Public Health England, all these professors with lots of letters after their name, almost all of them work for the processed food industry. They're all fundamentally conflicted, as Zoe Harkham calls it, the Mm. Eat Badly plate. And if anyone wants to see the Eat Well plate absolutely destroyed, just look at one of Zoe's YouTubes. She does it better than I ever could. But the point is, it's full of processed food. It's full of seed oils. It's full of carbs. It's the opposite of healthy. It's madness. Mm. It's type 2 diabetes plate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And 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 they're always encouraging people to eat five times a day, which doesn't yep. keep your insulin down. So no. I don't know. People and people are so bought into it. I went out with my friends last night, and they're all into this calorie counting and slimming world. And and it's and I I did so well. I just sat there biting my tongue. I did not say a word. Yeah. I was I was just so proud of myself and not saying yeah. anything. But inside I'm going, can't you see it doesn't work? Can't you see it doesn't work? Because they keep doing it and they keep going back because, to it. Yeah, because um, we give people the wrong guidance, all of us. And look, mea culpa, right? That's how I practice for 30 years, right? I completely understand it. And I tell you something, it's not easy when you've practiced, as I've done, at the top of your profession You've won all these awards, right? You've done everything that has been asked of you and some and got all this recognition for what you do to reach the conclusion you've been doing it all wrong and reverse yourself. That is very hard to deal with, Mm. right? And part of the reason that I think Asim and people like me, but Asim in particular or Tim Noakes, uh, Gary Fetka, get absolutely destroyed by their own profession and other professions is it's really... It's cognitive dissonance. It's very hard Absolutely. to think you've done your best, you've followed the guidelines, mm-hmm. and maybe you've done as much harm as good. Mm. So what we do is because we've got this incredibly strong belief system and we've all been trained like this, 
when it doesn't work for you, Jackie, it's not because we've given you the wrong advice. It's because you haven't followed it properly and you just need to try a bit harder. <laughs> it's your fault. It's not our fault because we've got you know, the advice wrong mm. and the medicine wrong. It's your fault. Let's blame you because you, for mm. whatever reason, I know you say that you don't take any Mars bars, but I bet you do, mm. right? I bet mm. everything you tell me isn't quite right and you're just not trying hard enough because the advice is right. The hell it is. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I had and someone that, in that a pushback. Yeah, and that's the pushback back onto the patient. You know, is yeah. that patient compliant? And you're a bad patient because you've turned up again at your appointment and you've done what? You've put on weight? You know, yeah. I told you. Yeah. You can just imagine those conversations that happen yeah, in yeah. every GP surgery, over every counter at the pharmacy as yeah. they're buying their another box of their OptiFast. Yeah, yeah. You, can just, you can just imagine that. Yeah. So. Can you just tell us a bit, you know, why seed oil is about? I don't think um, certainly on, on our previous interviews we've really explored the impact that seed oils has yeah. has on the system. Sure. And if you want more detail on all of this, I did a, a, a uh, if you go to my YouTube or, or my uh, Wellness with Prolongevity Facebook, you'll find I did a whole uh, 45 minutes on this. So if you think from a evolutionary point of view, what would we have been eating? What kind of fats would have been eating? Right? It would have been animal, animal. fat. Yeah. Right? Mm. And butter. Yeah? yeah? Probably not even butter a long time ago. Just the fat. Right. So the brief history of, is this. A German scientist found that you could extract oil from seeds. Now, if you get some olive olives and you crush it, it's oily, right? Mm -hmm. It's greasy. Yep. Get a bunch of seeds in your hands and crush them together. How much oil are you going to get? Nothing. Not a lot? Nope. This guy was, were, uh, was uh, asked to provide actually an engine oil. It was, he was a German scientist and they wanted an engine oil for German sub submarines. And what they managed to do was he managed to, by industrial processing under high pressure and clarification and chlorination and hydrogenation, he managed to get this engine oil out of the seeds and extract it. And it was fine for running the diesel engines of German submarines. Mm -hmm. So that's one part of the story. Another part of the story is the cotton industry. So back in the day when, before we had electric lamps, uh, cotton seeds were just a leftover. And again, they found that by industrial processing of the seeds, they could get a lamp oil out of it. And when Edison came along and invented the light bulb, you didn't need that lamp oil anymore. And it destroyed one aspect of the profitability of the, of the seed industry. Yeah. This oil that this German industrial chemist had produced, it worked, but actually there were only 100 submarines. He didn't make a lot of money. So he then sold it to a British company who thought, we'll get the oil and we'll make soap out of it. And they made soap out of it. But back in those days, I'm talking about the early 20th century, most people made their own soap. So it bombed. He then sold the oil on to Procter & Gamble. And they're a big conglomerate. <sighs> and Procter & Gamble thought, we know how to sell soap and market things. And they started reselling the soap. Didn't succeed. Again, because most people made their own soap. Two things then happened. They decided that by further industrial processing of the oil, they could process it and make it look pure, very pure and clear 
and they thought they'd sell it um, as an oil for frying in, right? Mm. This goes hand in hand with the Ansel Keys story. Ansel Keys was on the board of Procter and Gamble, and in I think 1930s, back in those days, as I said to you, if you go back a hundred years plus, there were really no cardiologists because there was no heart attacks. So at that stage, I think the American Heart Association was three guys in the back of a shed. And Ansel Keys, on behalf of what the brand that they created was called Crisco. And Ansel Keys, on behalf of Crisco, approached the American Heart Association, I think in the 30s, and said, here's £20 million, right? £20 million quid in the 30s. We want you to endorse the healthy seed oils. But we won't call them seed oils, we'll call them vegetable oils. Hmm. And I want you to endorse them on the basis of the Ansel Keys theory that fat makes you fat and that saturated fat is the cause of heart attacks. None of it's based in the science, all of which we now know. And the rest, as you can say, is history. Yeah. So that's the history of it. And if you want to know more, then there's a fantastic... Uh, it'll come to me. The name's gone. I'll, um, or I'll, I'll give, put it in the show notes. There's a wonderful book that tells the history of the seed oils and the corruption that, that, that went on. Um, so that's so that the history the, of it. That, that's the Crisco story, right? So that's really how... That's the, Chris, that's the Crisco goes, story. That's story. Yeah, and that then became Mazzola, right? And actually, Mazzola used to have their adverts, which was prescribed by doctors. <laughs> so you go back 50 years, remember, it was smoke the brands of cigarettes that your doctor smokes. Cigarettes were promoted as a healthy thing to do, and the one to smoke was the one that your doctor smoked. And then they did the same thing with the seed oil. And of course, they've done the same thing in the same playbook now with sugar and processed food. Yeah. Mm. And so what's the point? The, the, the yeah. point really is that these seed oils, high in omega-6, short of omega-3, the answer keys theory was that it was the saturated fat that was the bad boy, right? So you wanted unsaturated fat, polyunsaturated fat. The problem is that these polyunsaturated molecules, so the science is that you can have a carbon... And a carbon can attach to six hydrogens. So if, your carbon, if the carbons are bonded together with a single bond, then you can have all these other carbons. The more carbons you add, the more saturated it is. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by saturation. It's a bit scientific. To put it more simply, if the fats are not soluble, so the fats are chains of carbons linked together, right? And you can have single bonds, double bonds, etc. Yeah, multiple bonds, yeah. Where you've got multiple bonds the fats are much less stable. Because they're less stable, they're subject to oxidation. So now you've got oxidated fats that you're ingesting. So the polyunsaturated fat in the seed oil, they're probably oxidized on the day they leave the factory. And remember, these fats are factory fats. If you look at the factories, it looks like a petrol processing point, plant, because basically that's what it is. So the fat is, so it's probably oxidized when, as soon as it's in the bottle. Once it's sitting in your cupboard for a few weeks or a few months, it's becoming more and more oxidised. So you're ingesting all this oxidised fat in your food. When you cook it, guess what happens? It becomes more oxidised. And let's face it, if you go to the local takeaway and they're having the fish and chips, which I love, heated, cooled, heated, cooled, heated, cooled, same fat, right? So they're cooking with this cheapest chips fat that's more and more oxidised. You're ingesting these uh, oxidized fats and they literally destroy your metabolism so the energy production of the cell is in the mitochondria right don't worry about 
that too much. But the, if you think about the mitochondria as the cell, as the battery of the cell, that's the fundamental energy driver of the cell. Saturated fats damage your mitochondria, right? So you're at a most fundamental level, you're damaging energy production of the cell, you're damaging cell membranes, and then you're damaging all the, the lipid transport mechanisms. So we can talk about cholesterol and good fat and good bad fats and lipoproteins if you want to get into that. That's kind of quite another long discussion, but I'm, if you want me to go into it, I'm happy to do so, or we can just leave it there. Uh, up to you, really. So, yeah, so... um. I looked into the seed oils and in order to make it good for human consumption, they have to degum it, neutralize it, bleach it, deodorize it, winterize it, fractionate it, and then hydrogenate it just for us to be able to consume it yeah. and make it look good that we would actually yeah. want Absolutely. to consume it. So that oil is fine. You know, again, back in the day, it was fine for oiling the chain on your bike. And back in the days when it was all linen and sewing machines, and it was all manual. It was a great oil, sort of a light machine oil for light industrial processes. It was never intended for human consumption. They simply marketed something for which it was never intended and ignored the consequences. And just like the smoking industry, they continue to lie to us. Yeah. But you can't believe it's not butter. I know. And I spent years eating all that stuff, avoiding saturated fat, avoiding red meat. Everything was low fat, high carb. Guilty. I'm so bloody angry now that I've been lied to. Yeah. I think it's interesting I, I think it's I think what's annoying is not that they got it wrong is that now we're more and more people are seeing it as wrong and it was you know they've made a mistake is that people are not willing to change. Think about it like this, right? Uh, again this is a famous point that I always bring up. In 1954 Chief executives of, of the five big tobacco companies appeared in front of the Senate. And all five of them swore that in their best understanding of the science, there was no link between smoking and lung cancer. Not in 1934, not in 1954. It was in 1994. If you Google it, you'll find it on YouTube. They'd known the truth for 40 years. It's the same playbook. Mm. And you were mentioning about um, Gary Fetke, and obviously um, Belinda Fetke has obviously uncovered obviously further relationships between not only just obviously you mentioned about Big Pharma and Big Food, but it's the big churches and it's the church-based groups that obviously go through and they do all this health washing. You know, the vegetables are just pure and driven and we yeah. have this plant-based nutrition advice where, yeah. you know, we're demonising the red meat because that's obviously animal-based. So there's this do, other do you know movement. The history, do you know the history of cornflakes? Yeah, he yes, was because that was obviously Kellogg. So the history of cornflakes is very interesting. So the, the, um, the Seventh-day Adventist church kind of saw uh, masturbation as the seventh or the eighth deadly sin. And they reached the conclusion that men, ate, when men ate too much red meat, it made them randy and that would make them masturbate, which is a terrible thing. And cornflakes was introduced uh, by the Kellogg's family uh, as the most bland food they could think of because they thought if they substituted a really bland food for the red meat that men were eating too much of, it would reduce the amount of masturbation. And that's the history of cornflakes. Mm. I kid you not. I knew they were Seventh-day Adventists, but I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, but it, but it makes sense because obviously if you're having all this nutrient density through meat, you know, that's part of the virility 
and that gives you life and vitality. So let's obviously, you know, as good church, God-fearing churchgoers, make sure that we don't engage in any reproductive activities or self-pleasure, then that's, you know, that's, as yeah, you said, yeah. it's, it's one of the deadly sins. Uh, I mean, all of this stuff is so corrupt. Of course, from that has grown an entire industry. And of course, there's all this corruption now between the vegan industry as well. So the less red meat you eat, uh, or the less meat in general that you eat, the more calogs you like to eat. And if you look who's bankrolling a lot of this move towards veganism, it, is, it all comes from calogs and associated industries. It's, it's, takes your, it really does take you some time to get your head around how corrupt all of this is mm. and just how evil it is, because you don't want to believe it. I mean, none of us wants to believe we've been lied to and that these big corporates are so fundamentally corrupt, but they are. And we haven't even talked about the statin industry, which is possibly for mm. another day. <laughs> Yeah, and it, oh, you're right. It is about these vested interests and um, how they influence and ad or not advocate, but it's the policy influence at that level, at that yep. government level. So, Graham, before we wrap up, do you want to tell people how they can find you and a little bit about where's the best place to go? Sure, sure. So, have a look at my website, Pro Longevity. It's it's longevity with pro in front of it. Prolongevity.co.uk. Mm-hmm. You can find me on Twitter at Graham S. Phillips, G-R-A-H-A-M-S, Phillips with two L's. Or you can follow the uh, Pro Longevity Twitter feed, which is longevity underscore pro. And also, we've now set up a, 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 it's all lots of free resources. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube in the same uh, way. And we've now set up um, a Facebook group called Wellness with Pro Longevity. So there's lots of uh, free advice there, lots of interaction. I do uh, lives on there and there's lots of resources there that you can help yourself to. And then um, from there, you can, you can email me from the website. We like to think of ourselves as very responsive. We'll always try and provide some help and support. Great. Fantastic. So is there anything that you now know that you didn't know in the beginning that you wished you'd have known earlier? What, what's changed for you since starting on this real food journey? <laughs> <laughs> all of it the truth what i really wish i is now is i wish i'd been told the truth as a fledgling health professional i wish i'd i learned all the science i just wasn't given any of the facts and and all the evidence that i've uncovered and by growing this community and being part of this lovely uh, low carb community i why are those facts hidden from us why as health professionals are we given all this training we're all sincere in what we set out to do. Why is half the information hidden from us? Why aren't we told the truth about insulin and carbs and seed oils and processed food and sleep and exercise? Why? Mm. So I'm on a mission now to, to change the, the undergraduate course for community pharmacy, for pharmacists, all my pharmacist colleagues. And I know that there are a group of people in the medical profession, Asim, Ian Panja, Rangan Chatterjee, David Unwin, etc., who want to see the training of... So I would like to see all health professional training changed so we still have the fundamental science, we still have the clinical skills, but tell us the truth, please, for heaven's sake. Yeah. And, Graham, we're going to have to get you back 
Um, <laughs> we have it. We've, we've got, we've started an agenda, um, which includes the microbiome, cholesterol, lifestyle issues. But as you said, you've got all these free resources on your website, your Facebook group and that sort of thing. So in the meantime, our listeners, um, in the show notes will have those particular links, um, to your wonderful resources. But on one last note, what would be your top tip for anyone wanting to start out on their low carb or real food journey? So have a look at the public health collaboration website because there's a ton of free resources. It's a social movement for change. It's not hierarchical. It's scientific, but not too scientific. You can start it. So I think with the public health collaboration, it's aimed at lay people who want to know more and want to know the truth. There are a lovely community. There's none of this unpleasantness that you see on Twitter and Facebook. There, it's a really supportive community. Jackie's an ambassador for public health collaboration, as am I. There's loads of free YouTubes there. There's dietary advice, etc. I kind of think if I was going to start somewhere that was easy, that was supportive, that was non-judgmental, that meets you at your starting point, whatever your starting launch point is, I'd start there and expand mm-hmm. out from there. And of course, you know, there's lots of stuff on my own website and the people can always contact me um, and go from there. Great. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Graham. Yeah, thank you. It's been it's been wonderful. And um, yes, I think it's it's really good to redirect everybody to the tribe of the PHC. So um, yeah, and once you find your tribe, you find you know you find that support. Thanks, ladies. It's been an absolute blast. Thank you. Thank you. We have a slight amendment to what was said during the interview. Towards the end of the recording, Graham said saturated fats damage your mitochondria whereas actually he meant unsaturated fats damage your mitochondria. Well, Jackie, isn't Graham so passionate about his, um, I suppose, his role and his journey into, um, into you know, eating real food and the benefits that he's seen? Yeah. And such a privilege, um, you know, in terms of the role of the community pharmacist in, in this health journey. Yeah, and I think the more healthcare professionals we can get on board with this the quicker we're gonna move people in the right direction mm-hmm. and i suppose it's also the fact that um we don't really necessarily see the community pharmacists as part of this wider healthcare team obviously you know at the center of this approach is really about the gp you know the gp being the um the gatekeeper to a whole bunch of services and certainly that's true for your system with the nhs as well as the australian system in um, with Medicare that you know we have this universal healthcare system where the GP is pretty much the universal access point for that care yeah and it was amazing he was saying how many visits they get every day what 1.6 million visits every day so they're really in contact with the general public much more than the GPs Yeah, and that was obviously that was a really eye-opening um, you know, fact that um, they are. And you can think about it that those community pharmacists are on on the corner. Um, certainly in the UK, you've got your Boots pharmacies. Um, you know they're well placed in the community with your GP practices as well. So that has a retail function, but also you know dispensing function. Yeah. But there must be a real tension, particularly for pharmacists that wish to support these lifestyle changes about de-prescribing, you know, trying to get people 
off medication when the funding model actually supports them you know, in terms Price, of dispensing. Yeah. So that's a real shift. There definitely doesn't. And, and there, there needs to be a shift from the top of, you know, supporting lifestyle health changes to promote health and prevent which he's which he's about is preventing rather than mm. curing if we get in there first and you know that was another astounding figure of how much is actually spent on prevention as opposed to dealing with symptoms once they arise it's symptoms yeah mm. and i think the other thing is that um you know like we've heard from from zoe hardcomb about being critical and just maintaining that curiosity about the hows and the whys and how he's actually using the data, you know, to make those decisions as well. So with his um, pro-longevity approach, that data is grounded in science to, to keep, you, um, keep you honest, I suppose, in your approach and making it nuanced for the individual. Yeah, absolutely. You can find the show notes at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero one nine. Hi, I'm Jackie and I'm recording this in January 2021 and I've been on a low carb or ketogenic diet for over three and a half years but I was concerned because I would still be considered obese and I still have a lot of fat around my middle and I was worried that this would affect my long-term health. Since we did this recording with Graham earlier in 2020, I decided to join Graham Phillips's Prolongevity program to find out exactly what was going on inside. So, with Graham's guidance, I've made some changes to my lifestyle, checked my blood results, and using a continual blood glucose monitor, looked at how my blood sugar was affected by my diet and my lifestyle. By following the program with Graham, I'm now really happy where I am. I know I'm on the right track and in the best possible place. If you're interested in Graham's program, go to prolongevity.co.uk or click the link in the show notes. Graham also has an active Facebook group, which you can join and join in the conversation, which is called Wellness with Prolongevity. And that link is also in the show notes. In the podcast, Graham mentioned some of his awards, but he's just been recognised at one of the highest pharmaceutical industry levels for his remarkable efforts in the treatment of diabetes and associated diseases. Graham was awarded Health Initiative of the Year for his work with Prolongevity, a diabetes prevention service. Graham said he's delighted and humbled to receive such a prestigious award. Type 2 diabetes and associated diseases such as obesity, cardiovascular disease and dementia are a worldwide pandemic. Helping patients find sustainable solutions to preventing or reversing these long-term conditions by improving their lifestyles via the Prolongevity program is truly a joy. Raj Newtan, head of Alphagia Pharmacy UK, said, All Alphagia Pharmacy members demonstrate incredible support for UK patients day in, day out. And we are very proud of all the efforts from the community pharmacy, in particular Graham. His commitment, energy and determination to help people in the UK live healthier and happier lives and fight life-threatening diseases is truly incredible. And I'm delighted his efforts have achieved this level of recognition. So well done, Graham. And uh, it's a fantastic uh, award. And uh, Congratulations. 
It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories, and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.